Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the life and legacy of someone who has been called the greatest Roman general of them all, Scipio. And we'll be finding out why he has been overshadowed in history by the person he defeated in battle. And that's Hannibal. We'd love you to join our discussion. Just send us a text on 53106. Uh, that costs 30 cents. Or you can email us at talkinghistory at newstalk.com. And we've already had a text in from some of our listeners in London. Alistair is there with his daughter, uh, Laura, and uh, they're really looking forward to the discussion of Scipio tonight. So last week we were looking at uh, the history of France. We were exploring medieval Dublin in the company of Professor Sean Duffy, and we investigated the role of the warlords in the Gallipoli disaster. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Scipio. Born around the year 236 BC, Scipio came to prominence during the Second Punic War against Carthage, and he defeated Hannibal at the famous Battle of Zama, where he was given afterwards the name Scipio Africanus. Despite this success, he found life difficult on his return to Rome, and he retired from public life, dying in the year 183 BC. Scipio is considered one of the greatest military leaders in history, a commander who never lost a battle. The distinguished military theorist Little Hart suggested that Scipio's battles are richer in stratagems and ruses, many still feasible today, than those of any other commander in history. And so in tonight's show, we want to explore his life and his legacy. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy is an award-winning historian of the classical world, and his books include Cana, Hannibal's Greatest Victory. Professor Catherine Steele is Professor of Classics at the University of Glasgow and is an expert on the history of Rome and her books include The End of the Roman Republic, Conquest and Crisis. Dr David Levine is Professor of Classics at NYU and is an expert on Latin prose literature, Roman religion and the history of the Roman Republic and he's the author of Livy on the Hannibalistic War on the Hannibalic War. Professor Federico Sant'Angelo is Professor of Ancient History at Newcastle University and is an expert on Roman Republican history and his books include Divination, Prediction and the End of the Roman Republic. Dr John Serrati is Professor in Classics at the University of Ottawa and is an expert on the relationship between femininity and male virtues in the martial culture of Rome during the Republican period and he's the co-editor of Conflict and Competition, Aegon in Western Greece. Well you're all very welcome and Catherine I might begin with you with a big question about where Scipio stands in the pantheon of of great generals and I suppose great Roman leaders. Some have called him the greatest Roman of Roman general of all time, and I'm wondering, is that an accurate description? I guess it depends which criteria you're using to to judge greatness, but I think it's certainly true that we don't tend to think of him as the greatest general. That's partly because of the the way that the the war with Hannibal gets told in later stories and the role that Hannibal plays in that. And it's also, I think, because when we, when we think of the span of Roman history, what really dominates the narrative is the generals of about 150 years later, Pompey and Caesar, and the civil war that ends the Republic, and the need to make sense of that cataclysmic moment. So Scipio is there in the pantheon, but as the stories get told, he gets fit, fitted into a particular box, I think, that let's later Romans think about competition, think about how do you manage greatness within a system that 
also um, about equality between um, a, a much wider Roman elite who are members of the Senate and, and the governing class. And as a result, Scipio is good to think with, but not necessarily as simply a great general. Adrian, it is fascinating the way he does get overshadowed by his his great rival in battle, Hannibal. But let's go back maybe to the rise of Scipio, because it does seem to be quite an extraordinary and rapid rise to power. And I wonder how much was down to luck and good timing and having some of the, say, the older generals killed off in battle, because he seems to have got his opportunity to to prove himself in battle at, at a very early age. Yes, I mean, whether you call it good luck or not, but this, you know, the Second Punic War starts when he's in his late teens. He's just took the about to start a political career, his father is consul. But um, on the other hand, that does mean that in the you know the first couple of years of the war, when Hannibal crosses the Alps, invades Italy, about a, thir- about a third of the Senate will die in just those two, three years in those campaigns. So a lot of people have careers they would never have had otherwise, partly because this war is fought on such a grand scale and for so long. So the Romans need more commanders. They mobilize in numbers, there are more legions around than there ever have been before for longer, and therefore you need more commanders, you need more magistrates, you're fighting on lots of different fronts. So there's an opportunity, he's the most famous, but there's, we think of Flamininus, the man who will defeat the Macedonians in the, the Second Macedonian War. There's a sort of generation of young Romans that get the leap into politics early, reach high office much earlier, and there are new men like Cato the Elder who have a very good, very successful war, and that's their, their sort of ticket into politics. So everything is changing. This is, is a much more abrupt and drastic change to the Roman system because suddenly a lot of people are dead and they are facing this crisis. You know, this is a struggle that goes on for the best part of two decades. costs them a huge amount in terms of lives and money and just sheer effort. So, yes, if, you're going to, you know, if you have the talent to be a great soldier, this is a good time to be around. Um, if you're ambitious, you're going to get opportunities, but it's also an extremely dangerous time to be around. And he could easily have been killed in one of these early disasters. You know, he came close to it. He was he was at Cannae, where not many Romans escaped. So it's luck on the one hand, but you've got to then have the luck to keep on surviving and make the most of all the opportunities you get. And Adrian, just on that point of having been at Cannae, uh, and indeed as the subtitle of your book says, Hannibal's Greatest Victory, do you think he learned something from that, that being part of defeats like that, it meant that he had a very close first-hand experience of the tactics Hannibal was using, and, and perhaps it influenced and shaped his own approach to warfare? Yes, I mean, it, this is a very hard school. Um, that Romans of his generation are attending, because you are up against Hannibal and his army in particular is far more flexible than anything the Romans can achieve at that time. You know, he he does these very clever things. He's able to get his army in position and um, ambush a, a Roman army in 217 at Lake Trasimene. You know, he can defeat and virtually destroy a much larger Roman army at Cannae. So you are learning from the best because you've got to learn because things are going so badly. But you're also, compared to other generations of Romans, you're spending nearly all your young adulthood with the army. And not just with the army, but fighting pretty intensive campaigns. So he's getting far more military experience. And the the bar is set very high. If you're going to match up, if you're going to win and succeed, then you've got to learn quickly. And the Romans do learn. I mean, the Romans 
improve in terms of the quality of drill, of flexibility, of the way the armies work during the course of this war, because they have to, and because men like Scipio, it's not just the leaders, but many of the soldiers are under arms and with a legion, one or the other, for, for years on end, sometimes decades on end. So, you know, you're getting a t- this experience of warfare that is very unusual for people in the Roman Republic, both before and after. David, let's talk about the sources, because whenever we cover a, a topic to do with ancient history, it's always very interesting to, to discuss what materials do we have from from the contemporary period, what was written hundreds of years later, and how, I suppose, the stories changed and evolved. And I wonder when it comes to Scipio, how strong, is the, the, how strong are the primary sources uh, from this period? The answer is we don't have any. If we were dependent only on contemporary sources, we wouldn't know anything about Scipio at all. It's, that, it's really that simple. The two primary, the two reasons we know about Scipio, primarily it's Polybius, who is writing around um, 80 to 100 years later, and then Livy. Polybius' work does not survive, the relevant part of his work does not survive completely, it only survives in fragments. Livy is the only source who provides a full picture, but he is writing something like 200 years later. So he, so it, so it, and he, but he used Polybius. Polybius himself used earlier sources. Polybius himself, in fact, claims to have interviewed and had personal, to a personal acquaintance with people who fought in the Second Punic War. He also was acquainted in a later generation with members of Scipio's family, who certainly will have preserved information. But we do not have contemporary sources. Everything is filtered to that extent. And David, do you think then that perhaps that explains some of the maybe the different accounts that we get of him or sometimes there are descriptions of him, you know, having a fondness for women and sometimes there are uh, stories of him uh, sparing, is it the fiancé of a chieftain and, and, and being trusted by the chieftain then afterwards and uh, because he, he handed the, 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 the fiancé back that there, there are stories, how much do we know that they're real and how much could be possibly uh, stories that were kind of retold and embedded as the years went on? Well, certainly this, the stories that there's a very famous story about him in Spain after the, after the capture of New Carthage, about, about his magnanimity towards the female captives and so on. And certainly stories like that may very well have been embellished. In that particular case, it looks very much as if it's been embellished on the basis of the treatment of, of Alexander the Great, with whom Scipio was often compared and to whom it's at least there's some there's some suggestion he may have deliberately tried to model himself on Alexander the Great. And so Scipio's career kind of the, the narratives of it kind of get slotted into an Alexander-like um, situation. That's an example. That's a clear example of that. On the other hand, I mean, if you're thinking of the general outlines of his career, of the battles he fought, and so on, I don't think we can have any serious doubts about about those. Um, as I say, Polybius is generally considered as a pretty reliable source on these factual kind of matters, even though he's writing in a later generation, he made a real effort on his own account to, to, um, to provide, to use a proper, a very a sort of rational methodology for finding out the past. Um, but there's a whole load of things. And when it comes to the last years of Scipio's life, the, the, his, his trial, his exile, his death, I mean, there even, 
Livy, who is our main source for that, throws his hands up and says he really doesn't know what's going on. He's got all these contradictory stories and he himself could not make sense of, 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 how, of those contradictions. John, I wonder when we look at Scipio as a general, are we able to identify what were the, the special ingredients that made him so successful? I wonder, was he an originator? Was he an adapter of things that he saw uh, other generals using? And, and I suppose, how transformational was he in terms of the, the approach that he took to, to warfare? Yeah, I think he was all of those things. Uh, he was an adapter. He was an originator at the same time. I think Scipio is part of a, a new, uh, a younger generation of Romans who are, are, have gradually embraced Hellenistic Greek tactical manuals. These things were very popular in the Hellenistic East in the third century, and they've, they've clearly reached Carthage. Hannibal clearly had access to them and learned a lot from them. And then uh, beforehand, we have the Roman army largely depends on win, uh, to win battles on its skill, on its experience, overwhelming its its opponents. They don't really think in terms of tactics and maneuver. It's only with generals like Scipio, like Fabius Maximus Cunctator, like Marcus Claudius Marcellus, that we get this young generation who starts thinking tactically. I have no doubt that he learned a lot from Hannibal, but he also had access to these these tactical manuals, and this represents a, a sea change in uh, the, Rome, the Roman military experience, where they, they, they go in as more of a citizen militia, a highly experienced citizen militia, but a citizen militia all the, uh, all the same. And then, as Adrian said, by the time we reach the end, they are, they're, they're training, they, uh, they're thinking uh, not just tactically, but they're thinking strategically as well. And this really opens the door to, to the larger conquest of the, of the second century. So the, the, the career of Scipio really represents a bridge between the almost smaller scale conquests that came beforehand and the very large scale conquests which came afterwards. And John, it's interesting. He seems to have been very good at watching something being done by someone else and and making it doing it in a better way himself so if he saw Hannibal uh, being successful at something he would he would he would model a new tactic based on it but do it at a at a much higher level yes i mean and and we see this a lot we see this with the uh, uh the gladius hispaniensis right he sees this very successful sword that his opponents, the Celtiberians, are using in Spain. He adopts that for the Romans and trains them with that sword. With that sword, he sees at Cannae. Why did Hannibal win? Well, he had superior cavalry. the The Romans were not a horse culture, right? The the equestrian uh, soldiers that they used were were largely men which kept horses, but they themselves were not, as the saying goes, raised in the saddle. So he goes two o six. He makes uh, an alliance with some of Hannibal's cavalry and brings them over to his own side. So he saw what what, what had to be done, and he did it. And we enter this period of uh, uh, where where the Roman army is 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 embracing combined arms far more than they had before, and that and that raises more uh, comparisons with with Alexander the Great, who did the same thing. 
Federico, it's very interesting as well to look at how later people wrote about Scipio and his achievements. And the philosopher Seneca uh, discussed the, the 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 glory days of, of Scipio, his leadership st- style, and so on. And I wonder. Do we get a good insight from these other great figures into the special mixture, the special combination that Scipio had? Making earlier about uh, uh, Scipio Africanus being a bridge, right? A, a bridge between a, um, a traditional way of, of doing things and, well, new elements that are coming to Rome, into Roman culture uh, from the Greek world, but also from, from Carthage, which is a very significant uh, presence in the Mediterranean world at the time. And it also applies, I suppose, to, um, yes, to Scipio's reception uh, in posterity. Um, Because, as Catherine, for example, was saying at the beginning, um, it is very tempting to compare the scale of Scipio's achievements, both both on the battlefield and indeed in internal politics, um, with those of figures like Pompey and Caesar. And so in many ways, you know, Scipio becomes both a man that belongs to a, to a, to a very distant past, uh, that is very easy to idealize, uh, and a man that uh, in many ways brings uh, about new developments uh, that are also in some respects disturbing. You know, he's someone who, after all, retains uh, imperium for well over a decade, imperium sort of military and politically command for well over a decade. So he seems to act in many ways very much testing the limits of the Republican order. So, for example, in, in that uh, Seneca letter that you uh, were, were referring to earlier, um, yes, I mean, that letter is uh, a reference in, on, uh, on, on, on Scipio, on the selfless decision that he made of, of leaving Rome uh, towards the end of his life um, to avoid uh, what could have been potentially a major political crisis, um, but it's also a reflection on his lifestyle, which uh, Seneca describes, or perhaps I should say imagines, as the lifestyle of a Roman of the good old days, right? Um, And uh, so in many ways, these uh, later writings or rewritings of Scipio and his life story tell us quite a lot about those who produced them, and perhaps do not tell us a great deal about uh, the historical Scipio. Or perhaps they do bring home this point that Scipio is very much a figure uh, that uh, lives on the cusp of... uh, two different kinds of Rome, and it's very much a figure of transition. Very interesting. Catherine, uh, an interesting text in from Fiona uh, saying that there are me- so many Scipios as well as tonight's Scipio Africanus. There's, uh, Fiona's read about Scipio Asiaticus, Scipio Nemantinus, uh, and why are there so many of them and ho- how are they related to each other? But I suppose, is it the point that they're not necessarily related to each other? It's they get these other, is it these other names or other titles? at least the Romans of the Republican age, are not very imaginative in terms of names. So there are a lot of people with the same names um, over generations. So the Scipio family itself was already very well established in politics by the time um, of Africanus. His father and his uncle were both consuls. Those are two earlier Scipios. And in fact, he, Scipio gets his big break in being sent to Spain during the, um, uh, the war, partly because that was where his, his father and uncle had been campaigning, and they'd both been killed. Um, and the sense that, that the younger Scipio was very well placed to take over the armies um, that um, the, those two older Scipios had been um, organizing. Um, the Asiaticus is his brother, 
and he's a really interesting figure because um, he, it is he who leads Roman armies um, uh, to victory against Antiochus in the Greek East about 10 years after the end of um, the war against Hannibal. Our Scipio goes with him as um, uh, an officer and is widely regarded as, as the, the brains, the tactical brains behind Roman victories there. And indeed, it's, it's, it's much more to do with, with um, Asiaticus's command um, that the reasons which lead to Scipio being prosecuted, possibly, or at least facing the, the crisis that Federico talked about, um, that, that, that's where all that comes from. Um, but the Scipio family continues to be really important in politics. So um, his adoptive grandson, um, another Scipio Africanus, is the man who finally destroys Carthage in the middle of the second century BC, um, uh, also known as Scipio Aemilianus. Um, and another cousin, um, Scipio Nasica, is chief priest and the man who orchestrates the campaign, um, well, the, the, the lynch mob effectively, which kills the tribune Tiberius Gracchus at that moment when, when kind of violence erupts into domestic politics at Rome. So there are really important families throughout the second century BC. Then they, then they go into abeyance. But there is, a, there is a Scipio right at the end of the Republic um, who plays something of a, a, a role um, in the run-up to civil war. So, so there are a lot of Scipiones um, uh, in, in Roman history. Um, and the, the younger Scipio um, Africanus, Scipio Africanus Aemilianus, um, is certainly very conscious of his inheritance in terms of how he creates and structures his own career around about the middle um, of the second century BC. And would the brother have been called Scipio as well? Or I, I think was Lucius the first name? Would, how did they, would, did that not lead to a huge amount of confusion even when they were at home? Well, they, they seem to have managed it. And of course, it's better for men than it is for women, because remember, um, uh, all of Scipio's sisters, and I, I can't remember how many he had, but any of his, all of his female re- relatives were simply called Cornelia. And if there was more than one in one generation, they simply numbered them off. Cornelia number one, Cornelia number two, Cornelia number three, and so on. Um, uh, so yes, how, how, how they managed, we don't know, but they did have different first names, different um, uh, um, uh, first names, yes. Very interesting. OK, well, we're going to take a quick break now. But when we come back, we'll be continuing our discussion looking at uh, that decisive campaign against Hannibal and how he, wo- how he defeated him at the Battle of Zama. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history and tonight we're talking about Scipio, an absolutely brilliant panel of experts, Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy, Professor Catherine Steele, Professor David Levine, Professor Federico Sant'Angelo and Professor John Serrati. Uh, some lovely texts coming in as well. Elizabeth in Rahini texting in on 53106 to say that, uh, saying it's an enjoyable show. Good to hear about Roman warfare and so good to learn from real history rather than from movies. And also some lovely texts about great sporting achievements today and perhaps a connection with with uh, the military successes or the great successes of Scipio, uh, Lucy Whelan and her St. Column Kills team, uh, the Mead Division 1 champions in Gaelic football and Jack Tuffy and his Ballyhane team winning the Mayo Super League and Jack scoring, I think, the second goal today. So uh, perhaps uh, inspired by uh, uh, these other uh, great historical classical examples or perhaps not, perhaps uh, their own motivations. But uh, 
Adrian, I wonder, could you talk to us about uh, the campaign against uh, Hannibal? Uh, He became consul, I think, at the age of 31. So that was, I think, a a great achievement. Uh, He went off to Sicily and he seems to have engaged in some brilliant manoeuvres against the Carthaginians, attacking their attacking their their camps in the middle of the night, just, you know, I think burning them to the ground, doing things that some thought were maybe unethical or or maybe a bit uh, immoral, but uh, that were getting certainly great results. Yes, I mean, again, it's everything coming together. You've got to remember this is after years and years of this massive war going on and the Roman army and its commanders have changed and they've copied whether it's weaponry, whether it's tactics, but they're also just far more experienced. You know, some of the men he leads off to invade North Africa are the survivors from Cannae, who'd been sent off to Sicily as a punishment, and then they get sent off to Africa as well unto him. But it means they've been soldiers for well over a decade. They are extremely well-drilled. They are pretty angry and browned off as well, but they, um, they're not the easy prey that Hannibal had faced early on in the war, and that the advantage has just changed. But Hannibal and his army is still there in Italy, and the the Romans win this war on other fronts. They win it in Sicily, they win it in Spain, and then by threatening North Africa. And one of the striking things is that whereas the Romans have this citizen army so that everybody can be called up, and yes, they have lots of allies and they'll find them, the Carthaginians rely on allies and mercenaries and hired professionals. Each Carthaginian army tends to be unique, and Hannibal's one is exceptionally good. But none of the other Carthaginian commanders can quite match either his ability, but also particularly the quality of his troops and the, the degree to which they're, they're integrated as a team. Because the men Hannibal had led into Italy in 218 had been serving under him, under his father, for quite a long time fighting in Spain, and particularly the high command. So you've got, like a, like a sports team, a very well-practiced group who know each other's strengths and weaknesses, trust each other, can work together superbly well. Other Carthaginian armies aren't like that. So the advantage has shifted very much to the Romans. And when you have someone as imaginative, as careful at planning, but also as ruthless as Scipio, you can defeat both the the main armies sent against you very, very easily. I mean, it's almost dismissive. And even when Hannibal comes back, it's quite striking that at Zama itself, he deploys his army in three lines. And each line is effectively formed by a different, the remnants of a different Carthaginian army, the survivors with his own men from Italy, the survivors of that, the veterans from there in reserve. And he doesn't even address them all. You know, they're treated separately. They're under their own commanders. They're very much three separate groups that you haven't quite integrated into an army. So Hannibal doesn't have the force he'd had in the past because it's just been ground down. But he's forced to return to North Africa because the the home government of Carthage is threatened with Scipio on their doorstep and he's beaten all their other um, forces ready to defend the, the main city. So they call Hannibal back. So Hannibal is never actually beaten decisively in Italy, but strategically the Romans have just cut him off and um, reduced him to a smaller and smaller part of the peninsula and then forced his recall home when you'll get the confrontation at Zama itself. And Adrian, it's what you see as well, and maybe in a contrast to Hannibal's troops, is that the Roman army under Scipio is 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 better trained. It's in better physical shape. That he seems to be able to to prepare the the fighting unit in such a way that uh, they were going to be more than a match for their opponents. Yes, they are, and you can see from the manoeuvres at Zama itself, Hannibal 
is depicted as pretty much staking everything on this mass attack by elephants. And the elephants are not very well trained. Many of them have been caught quite recently. When they panic and fail, he doesn't really have an answer because unlike his earlier battles in Italy, he doesn't have an advantage in numbers of cavalry anymore because, as mentioned earlier, Scipio has gone and arranged and has persuaded many of the Numidian allies to defect. So he's got the advantage of a better balanced force, more cavalry, and also the legions and the Italian and Latin allies with them, very well drilled, very well trained, and also all from, from essentially one culture. You know, they all speak the same language. They all know how to do things their way, instead of the fairly disparate group that Hannibal's got by this stage. And, you know, Scipio is able to keep pressing forward. There's even the, the sort of the, the impression that Hannibal's plan is to just wear the Romans down and then let his third line of veterans take them out. But it doesn't work that way, because the Romans are too good. They maneuver, they reinforce their line, and they grind him down instead. So it ends up there aren't, there isn't really a clever Hannibal moment in the Battle of Zama. There isn't really a trick left up his sleeve. It, it, he is by this time outclassed, and he's been put in an almost impossible position. And John, what we really see as well as the importance of of the, the victory is in the preparation. The 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 huge background work that Scipio did really pays off at the Battle of Zama and it all uh, comes together for him against against Hannibal. Yes. Uh, um, th- that, you know, he, uh, he had been campaigning politically to go and, and bring the war to Africa for for a, a, a few years before he's able to do so. There's a great debate in the Roman Senate about whether uh, a, a new front should be opened up while Hannibal is still in Italy, and, and some have characterized this debate as, as almost uh, uh, jealousy at the meteoric rise of, the, of, of this very young general. Um, and and uh, but politically, he, he convinces uh, uh, the Senate, he convinces the People's Assemblies that... that that, that this is the way forward, and uh, you know he 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 goes. He takes scrupulous preparations in Sicily before embarking off to to Africa. He uh, it, it's it's almost a, 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 again a new age where you know the Romans up until that point had been campaigning. You know, other than the first Punic War in Sicily, they they had been campaigning with only within. A, a relatively easy march up and down the Italian peninsula, a relatively easy march to Rome. So supply was never an issue. The fact that Scipio is never is never undersupplied, and he's fighting on a on a different continent. Um, this shows the 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 uh, the amount of preparation he had done, and and. One of the things which opens the door, or the way he opens the door for these grandiose campaigns, which are going to come in the second century, is 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 very much that that logistical acumen. That's re- part of the reasons. The, part of the reason the Romans are so successful is because they master logistics. They master long-distance supply. And Scipio really gets the ball rolling on that front with his African campaign. So it all comes together. He's got, he's taken some of uh, um, uh, uh, Hannibal's cavalry. Uh, the, the men are drilled in, in how to deal with elephants. 
simply uh, moving aside and then uh, letting the ele- elephants pass through their lines and then showering them with javelins. And some men even supposedly go on, are able to go under the elephants and hamstring them. And, and, and he's using combined arms. Uh, um, and he's 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 bringing in uh, new types of weapons with the, with the new sword and uh, uh, and then all this all these tactics that he, he has not only learned from tactical manuals but he's also bringing in from uh, from what he's seen with Hannibal and undoubtedly Hannibal's Hannibal's relatives and this you know he is he he's so in this sense again I I, I come back to the idea that that he's really a bridge the. The, the, the wars beforehand are really almost conducted. He's almost, the, in many ways, he himself is almost the last of his kind with uh, the question that Catherine had about, um, uh, about, about these large families in Rome. They really dominated warfare before the Second Punic War. And, and the Scipiones are really the last ones who, who dominated afterwards, who are that last really big family. Yes, there are, you know, there's lots of Claudiuses ru- running around, but they're, they're loosely related. They're, they're, the Scipios are, you know, so they're the last of those big families. After that, we get, we get the rise of various individual generals and this, and this decline in, in almost private, fami- quasi-private familial war. Uh, Catherine, a very a lovely text in from Brendan Conroy in Windy Arbor in Dublin, uh, saying uh, re- he's reminiscing, remembering his 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 fabulous nace Latin teacher, Mr. Tucker Maguire, long since gone to his reward, and his teacher loved Scipio Africanus as a general and told us endless stories of his various campaigns. And Mr. Maguire did not approve of the way Scipio's successors uh, treated the weak- weakened Carthage. And isn't that a very interesting, significant point, uh, Catherine? The way you know, Carthage must be destroyed. Cato's famous line during the, the Third Punic War uh, comes to pass. Carthage is destroyed. But Scipio in this earlier period makes that decision not to raise Carthage to the ground and comes up with a, a, a maybe a, a generous peace settlement. Yes. And that sense that, that Carthage is essential not only to the, the military balance of the Western Mediterranean, but also actually to Rome's own health, becomes really important um, in um, in how the, the whole story is told. And um, it's Polybius, I think, who is the source of the story that Scipio's grandson, Aemilianus, the destroyer of Carthage, wept um, as he saw Carthage burn. Um, and the sense that, that that reaction was due to apprehension for the future. What is going to happen to Rome now that its great enemy is no more? Um, so, so that becomes a very um, a, a kind of key moment um, in how the Romans told the story of the last two centuries of the Republic, because it, it, it's a story always of decline, but of key turning points. Um, and 149 and the destruction of Carthage becomes one of those turning points when you know, it's it, it all downhill from here on, because we have destroyed our great enemy. Um, and we weren't, we weren't able to be magnanimous. And as a result, we haven't got anything to check us in our headlong um, uh, pursuit of luxury and so on. And then you get all these moralizing um, accounts of how, how um, the Republic comes to end. 
Federico, in a way, it also goes goes wrong for Scipio on his return f- to Rome because you would think that he would be in an unassailable position and that his his reputation would be able to withstand any kind of attack. But he's perhaps unprepared for uh, some of the the political uh, maneuverings of his opponents and uh, the way he and the way the kind of political warfare is waged. Yes, and that political warfare is waged um, through the courts, largely. Um, and um, again, it's not just um, an offensive against uh, him, it's also an offensive against his brother, uh, Lucius, and it happens in the aftermath of that extraordinary victory against uh, King Antiochus in the, in the Greek East. Um, and uh, it takes the form, really, of uh, two prosecutions. Uh, Lucius ends up on trial. Uh, Publius is also, is also indicted on embezzlement charges. Right? The, the, the accusation is that they, they, they've been accepting bribes from, from Antiochus in the run-up to, um, uh, to the peace settlement with the defeated king. Um, now, that of course can be regarded as, and indeed many people have done so, as evidence that uh, uh, the Scipiones, and especially our Scipio, Scipio Africanus, were much uh, better prepared to wage war than to make their way through the, the, the perilous seas of politics, and I'm sure that is true to some extent. But I think we should also regard it as a, um, a significant political operation in its own right. Uh, no doubt personal jealousy will have played a part, but the so-called trials of the Scipios, which lead to the Africanos' decision of leaving Rome and uh, uh, withdrawing to private life in his villa in Campania, um, are also, surely, a sign of the fact that uh, the Roman nobility, right, the rest of the Roman political elite, uh, was prepared to take uh, swift and determined action to prevent uh, the long-term supremacy of an individual, or indeed of a family. So in a way, it could be regarded as a, as a sign of uh, reasonably good health of the republican system. Uh, Scipio is, in some respects, of course, yes, a quintessential Roman nobleman, or can be regarded as such. He's certainly a very successful military commander who wins those wars on behalf of the Respublica, but uh, his uh, extraordinary, extraordinary political prominence is also regarded as a, major, as a major risk for the long-term welfare of the Republic. And action is taken to stop that. Well, we're going to take another quick break now. When we come back, we'll be exploring the later years of Scipio and assessing his legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking history. On News Talk. Well, welcome back. We're talking history, and tonight we are talking about Scipio, the life and the legacy. And David, I was wondering, could we talk about the final years of Scipio? Was there a sense that when it came to his political career, he didn't quite understand the political psychology or he wasn't quite as good at managing people? And was there a sense that he was disillusioned with things in Rome in those final years? Well, I think one thing to say is that um, we don't really know a huge amount, except apart from a few highlights of Scipio of Scipio's career. He is censor, which is kind of a big deal. And but but you know we we learn virtually nothing about his censorship except it went fairly successfully. He is consul for a second time. 
According to Livy, he, he actually wanted the big command against in Macedonia, but he got shunted away to a secondary command instead. Maybe that suggests he's not so good at, at organizing things, at, at, running, at, running, at running political life. Um, and of course, in the end, he and his brother both get caught in this, these, I say, trials, though, the, uh, what exactly the trials consisted of and what exactly they're being prosecuted for and what the outcomes are. Even our ancient sources are not terribly clear about that. But he certainly does get caught up in this. But there's, there is some sense, I think, that Scipio has a problem with if you might say, people management. Um, back in, during the Second Punic War, he leaves a lieutenant of his called Plaminius, Quintus Plaminius, in charge in, in Locri. Plaminius behaves extremely brutally and is, a, and is eventually prosecuted himself. Scipio gets some... Is, it appears at least to have condoned, at least by omission, what Plaminius was doing. He wasn't keeping sufficient control of his lieutenants. And this causes problems for him at the time. According again to Livy, this also is one of the things that is then rehashed nearly 20 years later at the time of his trial. So I think there is some sense, perhaps, that Scipio is not as good at, at handling Roman politics as he, as some of his contemporaries were. Federico, it's disturbing to see how uh, some in the far right have, have come to idolise and champion Scipio and that they've made him one of their, their heroes and icons. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, I suppose most notably, of course, in the fascist uh, age and the fascist era, um, he he was famously the, the, the protagonist of, a, of a, the main character of a film called Scipione l'Africano, which uh, was released in 1937, I think. A colossal, by the standards of the, of the day, lots of extras. Uh, we know that Mussolini visited the set. Uh, and yes, it was basically the story of uh, Scipio's victory uh, against, uh, against Hannibal. Um, you see, Scipione can be constructed as the hero of a defensive war, right? The, the defense of Italy against, and Rome and Italy against uh, this, this foreign enemy that invades the peninsula, but he's at the same time someone who really marks the beginning of uh, the Roman uh, imperial trajectory on a Mediterranean scale. So, so he's very much the protagonist of, a, of an offensive war. And at the same time, I think, from the viewpoint of someone like Mussolini, he was appealing because he was a Republican hero. So he could not in any way be associated with the emperors and therefore with the persecution of the Christians. Uh, at a time when Mussolini was very keen to establish uh, uh, strong bonds with the Catholic Church, and indeed there was a great deal of appetite uh, on, the, on the Catholic front too for that. Um, so again, precisely because there are many Scipios that one can, I suppose, construct, uh, uh, yes, there are ways of uh, constructing Scipio as, a, uh, as, a, as an Italian or even sort of as a Western uh, hero against uh, some sort of African offensive. On the rather more optimistic note, though, if I may, uh, uh, Scipio also sort of has pride of place in the Italian national anthem. <laughs> so sort of early on in the anthem, he, it's an anthem that was written by a Republican young man called Mameli. Uh, and uh, yes, early on in the anthem, uh, you know, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, brothers of Italy, uh, Italy has awakened. He has put the helmet of Scipio on her head. Again, because Scipio can also be constructed as a hero of a sort of war of independence. 
Very good. So indeed, as Italy was winning the European Championships in the summer, uh, they were uh, in part uh, uh, singing along to the to the memory and the legacy of Scipio. Catherine, how would you assess his legacy and how would you assess his influence on, I suppose, later Roman uh, generations, on, on, on Roman politicians and generals, and then I suppose his wider long-term legacy? Well, at Rome himself, I think he takes on... We've already talked about Seneca and the way that, that by the time you've got Seneca writing about him, he's, he's basically doing two things. He's a way of thinking about the good old days when Romans were austere and their bathhouses were small dark rooms and they just went in to get clean having spent the day farming. I like the, the bathhouses of today and then Scipio goes off onto this enormous riff about the luxury that you... Sorry, not Scipio, Seneca goes off into this, this riff about the luxury you find. And the other thing that Scipio does for Seneca is, is as we've already talked, he, he encapsulates how do you manage greatness within a republican system. Um, and, and Seneca boils this down to you can have Scipio or you can have um, freedom, but you can't have both. Um, so this sense of a, of a, of a, um, a state that, that was able to manage itself, um, uh, as we've been talking, um, when too much greatness seemed to destabilize it. But, but earlier, um, there's more complexity, perhaps. And I think one of the, the, the really, really bizarre moments in, in the reception of Scipio is what Cicero does with him um, in the so-called dream of Scipio. Now, Scipio, who has the dream, is, is, is again, Aemilianus, his grandson. But he dreams that his grandfather stands before him and expounds this extraordinary vision of the universe as a way, effectively, of saying the reward for virtue is posthumous. Um, live a virtuous life, and you will be rewarded after your death. Um, and the whole thing is, is, is very odd indeed, coming um, uh, from, from Scipio, and it's clearly entirely fictional. Here is Cicero reworking Platonic myth, um, but finding a historical context um, which allows him to insert it into um, his work, De Republica, on the state, um, uh, and allows Aemilianus, who's the protagonist of that, that, that dialogue, um, to recount this, this, this strange story um, at the end of the work as a way of, of, of allowing Cicero to begin to think about, again, what does statesmanship look like um, and how can we have statesmen who don't look to um, the rough and tumble of politics for reward um, and therefore can step back and display virtue in governance rather than being driven by ambition. Well, um, I'm sorry, Catherine, I'm afraid time has beaten us, but I think in a way that insight is a is a perfect note on which to end our discussion tonight. Many thanks to my absolutely uh, brilliant panel of experts, uh, Dr. Adrian Goldsworthy, Professor Catherine Steele, Professor David Levine, Professor Federico Santangelo and Professor John Serrati. My thanks to Susan Calf, my producer, Peter Malloy and Sound. Next week, we're going to be finding out about a Parisian and his world in the age of the French Revolution, the development of our cities in the 18th century, and why an English aristocrat established a Buddhist retreat on his property. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history, history. on News Talk.